Frank Daly and welcome to That Sounds Interesting podcast. My guest is Muna Wagner, who's had a very interesting life and lived in many different places around the world and works in quite an interesting job as well. So welcome, Muna. I'm delighted to have you on That Sounds Interesting podcast today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I know you lived in so many places when you were growing up and you moved around such a lot. So maybe we could start with some of those locations, starting from the earliest time, and then we'll move forward to the current day. And later on, then we'll get into the interesting career that you have. But I think the background actually in some ways has shaped your career. Yeah, you definitely can say that. I think that's a smart observation. You were born in uh, Brazil. So, okay, you can't remember that, but tell me a little bit about about growing up in, in your early years in Brazil. Um, well, I was very young when we left Brazil, so I'm basically starting at the end of, of my time in Brazil. But, um, well, basically what I can say, it's a very different place than most countries in, in Northern Europe in particular. So it was warm, it was sunny. I was born in, in what is winter in Europe, but uh, high season, high summer in, in uh, Brazil because it's south of the equator. And I was born to a single mom, so that was quite different. But um, because in Brazil, there's a family is important, or we were adopted to other other families adopted us, so to speak. So I grew up with with Brazilian friends. My mom would speak German to me, and I would reply to her in German. But my first mother tongue, so to speak, was Brazilian Portuguese. Your mom worked for the German Foreign Office. And did you move around uh, Brazil apart from Brasilia, or did you just stay there? No, we, we, my mom was stationed only in Brasilia, which is, um, I'm going to call it a fake city, or it was a city built from scratch, so to speak. So it was a very new place and it is a different, architecturally speaking, it was built in a completely different way than other towns. But as a child or as a toddler, basically, that was uh, way beyond my observation skills. <laughs> yes, of course. Actually, I believe that was built in a Bauhaus style, uh, or modernist style, I think. Uh, and so it's an experimental and brand new city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On a plateau, yeah. After Brazil then, did you move back to Germany or did you move to another country? No, actually, we moved back to Germany, which um, my mom working, as you said, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we moved to Bonn, which was back then still the head of, uh, or well, the, the ministries were located in West Germany and um, moved about some different places within Bonn, very exciting, um, until we then moved somewhere else in the north of Germany, which is uh, the countryside um, in, in a small village. And as you might guess, moving from a city to a village is always challenging for, for kids usually because one is a close-knit community and then there is the new kid in town. Of course, that must have been a challenge your whole life, Muna, because uh, you, every few years you moved around and you had that challenge of uh, making new friends, but also maybe staying in contact sometimes with old friends or losing them. So I guess that was difficult in some cases. I, I would say because it was my routine, I was used to it after a while. So I get antsy actually when I stay in one place too long because that's new to me. Then um, maybe we come to that back in, the, in later because when I then um, more or less settled in Berlin, um, the first years were really challenging when I couldn't move again. So that aspect actually comes more natural to me to move around. And that includes making friends. I'm sort of, I've gotten used to the fact that there are friendships based on, on experiencing life together, you know, doing things together. And then there are friendships that sort of, sort of survive long distance 
and long distances in between. Both have their benefits. So you moved and you moved again then um, to Russia at some stage. Yes, exactly. That was uh, 1992 to 1994. So politically speaking, uh, rather um, exciting time. <laughs> Just the turn from from yeah communism to capitalism, if you want to call it like that. And that was um, quite a culture shock, I'd say. And did you manage to learn any Russian while you were there or did you just continue to speak German? Uh... No, no, no. Uh, I was raised uh, in a way that the country you live in, you've got to learn the language or you at least give it a shot. Learning Russian was very difficult. I mean, it have, grammatically speaking, I'm in awe that people can speak it. Um, I found it really challenging, but yeah, that was just the way I like to communicate. So I think it's worthwhile trying it and usually people respond in any country with a smile when you make lots of mistake, but they, uh, mistakes, but they can tell that you're at least trying. I should learn, I should take a, take that lesson. Since <laughs> I've spent so much time in Germany and I still actually don't know German, only small little pieces of it, but maybe I should practice a bit more. Ah, we will give it a shot and we'll do some tandem. <laughs> okay, so there was an incident that occurred in Russia, uh, which maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, um... During that tumultuous time, so to speak, there was an attempt to overthrow the government, the Duma. And my mom back then was actually um, in Germany with my little brother and I was staying with uh, the family of friends of ours. And with the overthrow of the Duma, there, were, there was a big tank in front of the, the parliament building and it had, uh, well, created some fire. So the, the, the Russian White House was partly black and white. And then we... I was staying with, with those friends and we decided to go to Gorky Park, which is sort of a, a fair kind of theme park just for a nice Sunday outing. And so the big family, three kids, the parents, we took the metro station um, or took the metro to get to Gorky Park. And we were a bit surprised because it was really, really empty. There were not many people about. And we thought, OK, but this is Sunday. Usually people like to use the metro any time of the day or any day during the week. And when we exited at Gorky Park, a police officer came to us and he asked us if we knew what was what was happening, why we, were we actually out? And we just thought, well, we're having a family outing. And then he told us it might not be such a good idea during this time because there were actually snipers around. So we were lucky that we just got back on the tube and um, journeyed our way back for, I don't know, an hour or something or more uh, without seeing any snipers or experiencing any, any closer contact. But that was for a while. Actually, we got three days off school because it was too dangerous to take the bus to go to our school. Wow. That must've been very scary for you. And I guess for your mom also, because when she was abroad and she heard about it. Yeah. I mean, my mom told me later that she decided, okay, she isn't there, so she can't do it. My mom is great at trusting everything and everyone in the sense of, she she trusted then that my the family I was staying with because they were also working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that they would know at least if the situation was too dangerous and if we had to leave the country. I just recall that I don't know if I was ten or eleven that I thought um, I'm really happy that I get three days off school, but I shouldn't be happy because you know this, I get that snipers are not a good thing. But then you know you you you, you choose your your best. You you look at the situation very subjectively so i actually enjoyed the three days off because it was sunny back then i remember you moved on after russia then um to uh luxembourg i believe indeed yeah that was what was that like that was just entering 
a different planet, not only a different time zone, but it was literally like moving to a completely different world because during the time in Russia, um, commodities were scarce. So, you know, any shopping experience was very limited. Not that you want to buy much, but there wasn't actually anything to buy. And then you enter the world that is Luxembourg and you see, you know, shiny, expensive things in, in the windows from, you know, haute couture, escada, prada, jewelry, everything. And flowers and sunshine already in March and not only in May, because in Russia, snow stays with you for a long time. And that was very, I think that was to a certain extent of the largest culture shock, just the cons the consumerism or the possibility to consume in those two countries was, it's just back then was, yeah, there was a huge gap. And then to realize, okay, what am I doing? What is this? Where am I? And of course, actually, you were probably just becoming a teenager at that stage as well, becoming more aware of, um, buying things. Uh, whereas if you'd been younger, you wouldn't have been that aware of it. Yeah, playing in the snow was all that we needed in L Russia and then <laughs> Luxembourg new things. Consumerism, clicked uh, in. So um, moving on though from Luxembourg, you then moved to uh, the USA, I think, was it? No, actually from Luxembourg, I then took a detour to the UK. I managed to, to do a high school year abroad, so to speak, and I decided to go to the UK to Wardhurst, which is a village in East Sussex, and um, actually to a boarding school, which was still one of my nicest experiences learning-wise. I did enjoy enjoy going to a boarding school, wearing the school uniform, very different experience to, to my usual daily outfits in school. You've had such a varied life growing up, completely atypical of most people. Most people would have had maybe one or possibly two uh, different experiences of, of where they lived or if they moved somewhere else. But very few people would have moved to many different countries and experienced the school system, the social system, uh, interacting with people, maybe different religions, you know, lots of different things changing uh, 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 every couple of years. How, how, how long typically did you stay in, any, in each country? It was actually different. We stayed only for two years in Russia, but otherwise it would, generally speaking, it's between two and four years of placement. Um, and in Luxembourg, my mom stayed longer, but I had the gap year, so to speak, by going to, to, to the UK. And then I returned to Luxembourg. Then you went to the USA at some stage. Yes, but that was so I then after I graduated in I in Luxembourg, I went to Berlin and from Berlin then I decided at one point this city with 3.5 million people is too small. I needed new inspiration and then I packed my bags and decided New York is is the size that feels about right. So how did you get on in New York? I love New York. I one of my favorite things is in any country wherever I am, if there's a, um, a cultural mix going on and just seeing people from different countries, different cultures, getting along and walking side by side, different languages, I find that always very inspiring and very, I feel very much at home there. I, I still find it confusing at times living in Berlin, depending on where you are in the city, of course, that people speak my language or I understand everyone. That's still somehow um, a bit, not scary, but still strange. Uh, you went to India then as well, actually, at some stage. Yeah, yeah, I did 
for for work for an NGO. I went to India to in, to the south of India to Tamil Nadu for three months and continue to go there regularly. Um, and it's and and that that's village life in India. So that's again something else. I do spend some time in Mumbai simply because I think it's a nice place. Mumbai to me is the New York of of India. So it's a nice way of slowly getting into the Indian culture and then from then on going to a village or heading out. It's the opposite way. You get already a bit of a Western vibe, so to speak. Um, yeah, and it's completely different, as you said, different religions, different, different outlook on life, different experience of life. So all those different experiences growing up um, probably shaped the type of career you wanted to do, actually. So let's talk a little bit about your work now, the uh, type of work you do. My career choice was not a conscious choice, I have to admit. I just stumbled upon it. So I became at one point a trainer and facilitator. And I realized working with people is something that gives me great joy, um, especially groups. But I also give trainings, which are then more focused in the field of communication, team building, leadership. Because basically I think everything is, for me at least, things become easier when they're people-oriented. Part of your communication, you dealt with the four different types of people. So maybe talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, gladly. Uh, well, it's a nice way of, uh, because everybody needs to communicate, right? But sometimes it's such an automatism that we lack the awareness of our style or how it is perceived by other people. And one way of, of detecting your communication style um, is looking at it th through the metaphor of of animals. So there are four types. That's the elephant, the tiger, the doe and the goose. And Frank, let me ask you, what do you associate with an elephant? Big and uh, maybe possibly, it's hard to know, maybe something you don't talk about if there's an elephant in the room. Yeah, so it's very prominent. At least you can't hide the elephant that easily. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what is your association with, with a goose? Maybe the fact that it might be a little bit noisy and moves around, possibly. Yeah, that's, I mean, the general nature of, of the animal, right? And because we, we have four, the, the tiger is, of course, the one people are easily frightened of because it's, so, it's, it's more aggressive in comparison, at least, to, to the elephant. And what do you associate with a doe? Very timid, I guess, really. Yeah, exactly. So these are four types. And this is what you can at least have a look at, how you perceive yourself when you communicate. Are you the elephant, which is usually associated with you are calm, you are strong, but people can't ignore you, but it's not so emotional. Whereas with the tiger, for instance, there is um, it's also very clear, but there's more aggression, more emotion there. You know, people don't hide it, especially in, in a conflict. Whereas the goose, as you said, it moves around a lot and makes a lot of noise. And in this, in this uh, approach to communication, at least, it has also the effect that one is not always sure what the person is telling you. So I don't know if you've had a situation like this, that there is a conflict and somebody's you can clearly see that they're agitated or that they have an issue, but you just can't quite grasp it. And that's sort of the goose mentality. But it's not in a judgmental way or anything, because there are positive and negative sides to any character type. And you choose the, or your nature falls into one where you think that's the best approach to, to communication or, or conflict avoidance or dealing with a conflict. A shy doe is shy because it thinks that, you know, a direct conflict might be too aggressive or might cause harm in the long run, whereas the, the tiger is the exact opposite. They believe if I shout at you, you will get my point more clearly. And the interesting thing is that it's, you know, you can ask your friends how you 
you know, how they perceive you. You can think of yourself, how you perceive yourself. And then it also falls into play um, the, the cultural elements of it, because you can associate different kinds of communication styles within different cultures, uh, not within, but also culturally speaking. Before we get into talking about uh, what, how, you know, what type of organizations you apply these types of uh, uh, training and facilitation, what animal do you think you are closely associated with? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, cheeky. Well, um, to tell you the truth, I always thought myself of as the elephant because I thought, you know, I bite my tongue, I try not to yell at people, so I'm calm and um, serene, of course, in my mind. And then I asked my friends and they were like, you're a tiger. And I wasn't aware of that because, like I said, I thought, but you don't know how often I try to control myself. You know, I'm not bursting out, but I use a lot of my body when I speak. Uh, I know I can, I usually give across some energy. So I guess I do understand the, the tiger association, which helped me to understand why, why some people um, are a bit timid around me. <laughs> What kind of animal do you think you are in your communication style? I, I haven't thought about it really, but uh, possibly the, um, maybe the goose or possibly. Oh, I doubt that. No. <laughs> or maybe, 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 maybe the, the, uh, the elephant possibly. So uh, just talking about organizations then that you actually um, uh, uh, have been delivering a training, what type of organizations have you worked with? Well, I started out with NGOs mainly, um, especially with people who volunteer in their work because soft skills is if you don't, you know, get paid for something, you, you do it out of motivation and then uh, struggles of like in any workplace, actually, you know, people have different ideas of how to manage something and to get this into into a box where everyone can understand each other and agree and then march into the same direction with with a similar idea in, in mind is that is what I do but then I'm working both with with um, with the companies at the stock exchange I've done that but I've also worked I work with universities I like I like the age group I think um, and companies who, who are willing to to reflect on on their processes and, and on working together I think it's more it's less about the company style and more the attitude that people bring. That's a very diverse collection of organizations as well. So um, I, I just actually regarding the uh, types of work, um, given that you have a lot of communication and a lot of talking to people and a lot of travel in your background, have you ever considered being a journalist or maybe a foreign correspondent or something like that? <laughs> you are very perceptive, I have to add. Um... Yes, I actually wanted to become a journalist. That was my first first aim in life. And I did an internship with a radio station, a local radio station here in Berlin. And I realized for various reasons why it's not the right fit. Because what happens usually, depending on in which field you work, so I'm not judging that and I appreciate people who are journalists, but in a fast-paced media industry, you're looking for quick answers for um, complex solutions and I like to dig a little bit deeper. But it doesn't bring me on to something that's kind of related to uh, broadcast in some ways and the fact that you've recently started a podcast of your own called The Moonologues. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that podcast. Happy to, happy to. Yeah, I've been for more than 10 years, I've been researching projects that make a difference in their own environment because I believe in copy for change, something that works in one corner of the world might actually 
work in a different corner of the world just as well if you adopt it to regional differences. And that's what I talk about. I talk about projects that try to make a difference, projects, people, organizations, initiatives. And if I may add, it came about that in 2011, I first was aware of the East West Indian Orchestra. Have you heard of that? No, no. Tell me a little bit more. It's, um, it's an orchestra by Daniel Barenboim, the conductor, and it consists of musicians from, well, Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis and Arab, actually Arab nationalities of, of well, different kinds of uh, Arab countries, and they play music together. And back on the 15th of August 2011, they had a concert on the inner Korean border at the demarcation line, and they played Ode to Joy. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, this seems to be such an impossibility, you know, not only having, um, well, Arab and, and Jewish musicians play together, but to play in the inner Korean border, which is such a conflict zone or possibility of a conflict, then, then playing Ode to Joy, that I thought, okay, there are good things happening in the world. Um, how much am I missing? What else am I not seeing? And that's how my research started. I wrote about them in a little column I had, and then I decided let's let's make a podcast out of it. And if people get inspired and get active, that would be great. Or it just brings them a little bit of hope um, and a little bit of joy. Let's spread a bit of joy. I've listened to two or three episodes of your podcast, and it's very interesting, I must say, actually. So I'm looking forward to your next episode. Now that the you know the, uh, pandemic seems to be waning a little bit, and it looks like travel is more possible, have you any thoughts in terms of traveling abroad again, or are you happy to stay put in Berlin? Uh, I love traveling, so definitely I could uh, could use some some traveling again. Place-wise, I'm not too sure. I think I'm a bit biased at the moment because I recently got into documentaries on, on Scotland and Ireland for some reason. And I think the, the nature is so beautiful and I've never been to either places. So it's dragging me further north, which is not a good choice for winter because it's going to get dark and cold. Not my favorite combination. So, but it's still appealing. Who knows? Well, actually, as it turns out, Ireland, um, where I'm from, as you know. <laughs> um, it, it gets cold and wet during the winter, but not as cold as it is here in Berlin because I think it's the uh, Gulf, the, the Gulf Stream actually war warm waters actually warm, make it fairly temperate. So it never gets that much below zero degrees in Ireland. That is definitely a lot better than Berlin winters. Do you recall your first Berlin winter? Everybody recalls the first winter in Berlin. I've never been in Berlin during the winter. Smart man. Even, even on this trip, I'm planning to leave here uh, after three months on the 1st of December. So, I, you know, just before it starts to get super cold. <laughs> yeah, good, good choice. Because I remember the first year it was, I think, minus 17 degrees. And there were the Siberian winds and I had to get up. I think I had to leave the house around 7 to go to uni. And it was just, <laughs> everything was not, not as I, in my heart, am a Brazilian, thought life should be. Of course. So, Mona, that's been, it's been super talking to you and uh, really interesting. Uh, thanks very much for being on my podcast. And I'm looking forward to hearing your next podcast on the Monologues. Thanks so much, Frank. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. We could have been stardust, same world, but without us, something